morning and welcome on this holiday weekend, the first big holiday of this summer. And everybody's probably going to be staying in, keeping air conditioned. <laughs> my, my, my one son went camping and it's just a little too hot to go camping. But uh, in your bulletin uh, this morning, uh, you had a flyer. Did you get a flyer? Okay, flyer for the VBS. Um, and we're going to try to ask and get everybody participating in this uh, because we have in the back at the table and also at the reception desk on the way out, uh, we have some piles of these things. And we'd like you to grab maybe a half a dozen of them, each one of us, and maybe hand them out in your neighborhood where there's some young families with some young children. Uh, let's, let's just make it a total church effort uh, because VBS is coming up in about two weeks. And uh, so we don't have a whole lot of time, but a lot of effort and prayer uh, that has gone into it. And if you want to support it in any other way, um, you can read the, uh, uh, the, the announcement there in the bulletin uh, for that. Uh, but certainly keep that in prayer. And one of the things that, uh, you know, VBS has been around so long that it tends to be, I think, in the minds of many Christians, um, sort of, you know, babysitting uh, for moms who want to get rid of the kids for, you know, a few hours uh, during, you know, during the week. And, uh, and, and it's fine. That's okay. But the thing is, it's evangelistic. That, that's the purpose of it. You know, there's a verse of scripture in Isaiah that says, and a little child shall lead them. And there's been a number of instances in our own church where little children have led their parents or their grandparents to Christ. And so these are great opportunities to get into the home um, you know, with the gospel. So uh, again, pray about that and consider taking a few, five or 10 or whatever, uh, passing them out in your neighborhood. Or again, if you have grandkids and you have some children nearby you uh, that could benefit from that, it's, uh, it's a great, great opportunity to uh, see young people. And I'll tell you what, when you look at what's going on in our world today, our kids need Christ, amen? The youth generation, that's one of the real burdens on my heart to see young people um, come to Christ. Uh, with that, let's turn to Revelation 14. We continue through our study of Revelation. Uh, we're going to wrap up chapter 14 today, and uh, <clears throat> we're going to pick it up in verse 13 through 20. I'll read, you can follow, then we'll have a word of prayer. And so John writing here, and he says in verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, and blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works follow them. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, <clears throat> and saying, basically, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of, from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, 
For her grapes are fully ripe. And so the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and that would be Jerusalem. And blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And with that, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, as we uh, consider this, this future time that's coming upon the world, Lord, a time of harvest, a time of reaping, a time of judgment. And Lord, we live, uh, Lord, essentially, we live in a very peaceful time. Uh, even though, Lord, uh, uh, the world and history has always been besought, Lord, with, with all manner of troubles, Lord, we, we're, th we're thankful for the protections and the blessings that we afford in this country. Uh, yet, nevertheless, Lord, we realize that uh, judgment will come one day in the future to this world. And Lord, you have uh, given to us, Lord, uh, this great privilege of knowing you. And that in knowing you, Lord, we want to declare, uh, Lord, the gospel. And Lord, we realize that uh, future judgment is a part of that. And it's something, Lord, to us is very unsavory. It's something that we don't want to talk about. Uh, Lord, uh, we find ourselves so often uh, reluctant, Lord, to uh, communicate that. And yet, Lord, uh, we realize uh, that many people that we know, even those that we love, Lord, will be alive, Lord, during this, this future time, this future day. And I pray that, Lord, uh, that the love of Christ would be constraining us. That, Lord, your love in our hearts, love for people. Lord, you love people. Uh, Lord, you didn't create people to destroy them. You created them to, to bring them into loving relationship with you. And, Lord, we realize there's only one way to do that, and that is to commit our lives to Jesus Christ. And to recognize, Lord, the redemptive work that was accomplished, Lord, on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we attempt to do our best to communicate, Lord, uh, Lord, your gospel and the truth and the testimony of what you've done for us, Lord, uh, help us, we pray, to do that. That we would do it, Lord, with all diligence. We wouldn't just leave it up to some, someone else. E even in VBS, Lord, we're attempting to to evangelize young children, realizing, uh, Lord, as you would come into their life as a child, what a great advantage and benefit uh, that is for them uh, to grow, Lord, to go and grow through life, Lord, knowing the Savior, Lord, having your spirit resident in their life, having guidance and direction, having protection. And so, Father, I pray that um, as we consider these things this morning, <clears throat> I pray that, uh, Lord, uh, we wouldn't just be turned off by the fact uh, that we uh, look at this future judgment time, but that, Lord, um, we would have a right apprehension of things. Lord, uh, we thank you that your scripture reminds us that, Lord, uh, mercy rejoices over judgment. <clears throat> and, and you have called us, Lord. You, you have shown mercy to us. <clears throat> and help us, Lord, we pray, to show mercy. Lord, the mercy and the grace, the goodness that you have, Lord, revealed to us, that you have placed in our lives. Lord, um, that we would reveal that and show that 
uh, to so many, Lord. So many are needy around us, needy for Christ. And I pray that, Lord, we would have <clears throat> just a heart, a heart of compassion. Lord, a heart to evangelize. You said, he that winneth souls is wise. Lord, we need that kind of wisdom today. And we need the help of your Holy Spirit. Uh, so guide us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, when you look at the history of the world, you realize it's been one of war, uh, violence, uh, and aggression. And uh, once in a while, they call a war a just war. And uh, I, I don't really think any war is really just. Um, the fact of the matter is the only thing that's justifiable, justifiable about war is how we respond to the aggression of it to stop it. Uh, that's really the thing that's you know, simply justifiable uh, when it comes to this whole matter of war. And it seems to be that our planet, you know, humanity, is at war with itself. And, and I think that's because basically we're at war with God. I don't mean us personally, uh, but the, pers you know, the, the individuals that don't know God. Uh, you know, war oftentimes is bound up in the heart. Um, and, and the fact that is, is that when we, you know, are at war with God, that's an unwinnable war. That, that never is, is, you know, that's never going to work. Um, and so when Christ comes into our life, he's referred to as the Prince of Peace. When he comes into our life, he brings his peace. Um, and it's manifested in the rest that we enter into, a beautiful and an awesome rest. Now, as we look at this particular uh, time here, uh, as we move into this last section here of the book of Revelation, uh, it's a time of war, it's a time of judgment. We've seen the Lord, you know, reaching out in many different ways during this period, the seven-year period, to bring people uh, into relationship with himself. You know, the gospel, we talked about it last week, the gospel actually being preached by a supernatural being, an angel out of heaven, uh, speaking with a loud voice, uh, going through, you know, all the all the earth, uh, all the nations, all tribes, all languages, uh, basically giving them the gospel to turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. We only get a little glimpse of there what he says, um, you know, what the angel does proclaim in the gospel. But basically, he's pointing people to salvation, to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, but as we come here to this particular section in this time here, the only really just war is the war now that we see that God is waging. And what he's doing, he's putting down the rebellion of mankind. Um, and again, as we look at our planet today, that's the problem. I mean, there's all kinds of other problems, you know, relative to violence. But at the core, at the heart of the issue, uh, it's basically opposition to God and the purpose of God and the plan of God. And as individuals reject that, collectively speaking, when you look at that, it results in basically war, <coughs> oppression, you know, violence, crime, and all those particular things. And so God is basically putting away the very source of that. You know, the Bible tells us that the source of war <laughs> over in James chapter 4, verse 1, is man himself. It's the desires or the lust that, that you know, that resides in the heart. The desire for things. Um, the desire for, you know, oppression or aggression or to conquer, whatever the case may be. Uh, these things live, uh, even as a believer, we see how sometimes lust and desire, strong desires, you know, in our hearts can put us really at opposition with the Lord. Uh, you know, the Lord said to be, you know, to be a friend of the world, to be in love with the world is really to be an enemy or to be at enmity, you know, with the Lord. <clears throat> so even, you know, as believers, we understand these things because we are capable. And I think it's only really as we become 
regenerated by the Spirit of God, can we really understand these things and look at them in an objective kind of way? Uh, we're, we're in a sense because we're, you know, we're able to, by the Spirit of God coming into our hearts, giving, giving us a perspective outside of <clears throat> the whole issue of you know, humanity and sin and all those kinds of things. We can understand them so much better uh, than we can. You, know, you may think about uh, uh, who might be the most brilliant psychiatrist or psychologist. Uh, and I remember one time <clears throat> a very well-known teacher um, uh, saying this, that uh, a person who had basically a grade school education uh, is able to see more clearly into the spiritual realm than somebody with all those particular degrees. Uh, that's why when you, you know, when you think about, you know, when you're having some kind of moral or mental or emotional confusion, uh, you don't go to some secular psychiatrist. You go to the Lord. You go to his word. <laughs> you go to a pastor for counseling. Um, because there's no way that they can understand the spiritual things that you and I are going through. So we have a perspective as we look at the world around us, uh, and even as we look at you know, human, the human condition, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we have a, a proper perspective of you know, how to see things in the light of God and, with the, and by the truth of God. And so what we see here is basically the Lord is finally putting down the, the, the rebellion, uh, the lack of submission of uh, unregenerate, unredeemed man. And we see here in these next uh, several chapters how that comes down. But as we look at verse 14, who is this person? Uh, person is here that's sitting on a cloud, uh, having a sharp sickle uh, in their hand. Well, this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's doing here, he's preparing to come and to judge. Remember when uh, in John chapter 5, the Father, uh, or John, John's gospel says this, uh, that the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. You know, sometimes when, you, when, you, when this whole issue of judgment comes up, because sometimes it comes up, uh, sometimes you'll find people <coughs> wanting to maybe debate with you, knowing you're a Christian, um, and what you, you know, what you think about hell, because they want to basically tell you what they think about hell. Uh, they don't really want to find out, you know, theologically what the position is. Maybe somebody does, but sometimes when people are trying to stir up these kind of debates, they're trying to find out how, you know, you as a believer think about hell and, and judgment and all those kinds of things because they want to basically prove that you're wrong. They want to kind of debate with you. <clears throat> Pardon me. And you find out that many people, when it comes to, you know, the idea, the concept of Jesus judging, they think, well, Jesus wouldn't hurt a flea. Uh, he certainly wouldn't judge anyone. And the fact of the matter is that he is, because he is, not only as he has become the Savior of the world, also has been committed unto him. He has been given that, that great responsibility to be the, judgment, the judge of the world. Uh, his, first, you know, his first advent, he comes as the lamb. You know, he comes as the sacrifice. He comes as the high priest. He comes in many different roles, you could say. But basically, he comes to deal with the whole sin issue, <clears throat> to take judgment upon himself. That's what the cross is. And many people, uh, I can remember, you know, looking at Christ, you know, on the cross, you know, looking at a crucifix for my first 25 years and just not understanding really what it meant. And, and, and <clears throat> pardon me, what it means is basically he, he's on that cross for the sin of mankind, but it has to be personalized. There has to be that realization that he died for me. And, and when that happens, there's a, you know, an understanding of the fact that, uh, um, you know, the, this, this great redemptive act of the cross, it's, it's, it's for the sin of mankind. 
there was no failure on his, on his own. Uh, there was no failure in his mission. He came exactly to accomplish that. And so, you know, uh, <clears throat> that being done, now he comes, when he comes again in his second advent, he comes really as judge. Uh, and rightfully so. He's going to judge the world. Now he has given the world this window. Uh, since his death and his, his resurrection, he has given this, the world this window over the last 2,000 years, generation after generation of the world, as the gospel has gone around the world. You know, he's given opportunity for people to repent, for people to turn to him and commit their life uh, to him. You know, <clears throat> when you think about, <clears throat> pardon me, I think there's some kind of allergy getting to me. Um, but when you think about him coming as savior and as judge, for every person, he is one or the other. He can only be one or the other. Uh, he becomes our, our savior, our rescuer, uh, when we come to him in faith. But for the person who doesn't come to him, even though that person may think, well, I, I believe in Jesus. You know, I believe what the gospel or what the Bible says. But, you know, I'm just not ready yet. And I think there's going to be a lot of people that fall in that category that we know, uh, and if the day of the Lord were to start tomorrow, uh, that they would go into the day of the Lord. And I think that there will be many of them that will come to faith, you know, in Christ during that period. But why not do it now? You know, why not take advantage of this great opportunity? You know what I call uh, salvation now? It's, it's the great escape. Uh, when we look at, you know, the book of Revelation, it's the great escape. Uh, because the mere fact that we will not have to, will be raptured, the church will be raptured from the, from the earth before this time begins. But there'll be many people that we know that we love that have heard the gospel that really agree with it. But that, I'm just not ready yet. I hear that all the time. Uh, people think that, you know, when it comes to the gospel, I'm just not ready. I want to have fun. I want to enjoy my life. There's so much more that I want to do. You're, we will enjoy our lives immensely more you know, once we're redeemed, once we're regenerated, we really begin to see things, you know, as, as you know, God intended for us to see them. Uh, when I came to Christ, it was amazing to me. Everything looked different. Everything wonderfully was transformed. It looked like the sky was bluer. The grass was greener. People were different. But it was because I was different. And that's what happens when Christ comes in to your life. There's a beautiful and wonderful, you know, transformation I mean, it doesn't take away your personality. He redeems it. He redeems it, and he makes your personality what God intended it to be. Uh, the fact of the matter is, you know, until our, our, you know, our lives are truly redeemed, uh, that we're in sort of a, a, a form of death, uh, you know, a form of, a form of darkness. Um, we're, we're alive, but in, in many respects, our spirit, our spiritual life is simply dead. We're alive physically, uh, you know, emotionally, but spiritually, we're dead, and it's only as he comes in to our life. So, uh, basically, he's one or the other. You know, he, he either becomes our savior, ultimately, he becomes the judge of every person. We have to realize there is no other way to heaven than Jesus Christ. And I know that's a rub. That's a rub to a lot of people. Uh, especially in our culture and our society today where, um, you know, uh, we uh, accept anything and everything. Um, you know, everybody's going to heaven as long as you do something, as long as you do good things. Well, no, that doesn't work. The good thing you have to do is commit your life to Jesus Christ and realize that you need him. Realize that your life simply does not work without him. Now, in verse 15, 
uh, we see here an angel is dispatched uh, from the courts of heaven. And, in, uh, it's, and he says, um, basically, to, to the Lord on the cloud, uh, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth uh, is ripe. Now, there's a parable. Uh, you know, a parable is basically a story that bears out a moral principle and a moral truth, but also, too, the parables oftentimes are prophetic as well. And Jesus gave a parable about this. It's amazing sometimes when you look at some of the, the little parables and the little vignettes and stories all through Scripture can point to it. So, you know, as we've been looking at Revelation, and I've been going through the Psalms, it's amazing how, how many Psalms are referring to this particular future period. Now, they do have application presently when they were spoken. They have had application, in a sense, all the way through history. But their specific application oftentimes can be to a future time, the ultimate fulfillment of that. And that's the beautiful thing about God's Word. It's timeless. And that's why it's important that we, you know, that really, really are, you know, Bible students. Because you're going to find that God is always speaking to you and me, uh, no matter where you are in the Bible. I find the Bible is always timely. It's always relevant. It's always resonating with something you know, going on presently in my, in, in my life and in your life as well. That's why when we come to the Bible, you know, we need to come to it simply by faith. A lot of people, uh, you know, they come to the Bible, well, I've read it once, and, you know, I've, um, you know, I've read it through a couple of times, and uh, I don't know how much more it can speak to me. Listen, it's God's living word. Uh, it, 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 will, it will speak to us uh, till the day that we die, the day that we leave this earth. God's word is alive, it's active, we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, um, and it speaks right to our spirit, right to our life. So no matter where you are, um, I was just reading, um, been reading in Isaiah, I'm always reading in the Psalms, um, just reading some, something uh, over in Deuteronomy, and I was just thinking, Lord, how fresh that is. Lord, how relevant your word is as speaking you know, to my situation. And so we need to remember to do that. But par the parable here in Matthew 13 that I'm referring to, uh, it's in verse 24, <clears throat> 24 through 30, Jesus gives uh, the disciples these parables. But then he gives the explanation over in verse 36. And he says this, and this is the parable of what is referred to as the wheat and the tares. And now the, a tare is basically, it's a weed. It grows up in the midst of the wheat, and it looks like the wheat but it's not the wheat at all. And the only one that can really know the difference, you and I probably would not know the difference, but the farmer would know the difference um, to be able to separate you know, the weeds or the, the tares from the wheat. And he put forth a parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while men slept, the enemy came and sowed tares <clears throat> among the wheat and went his way. And when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. And so the servants of the owner, the work hands, came and said to him, Sir, did you not uh, sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Uh, he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and burn them up, or gather them up, excuse me? <clears throat> no, lest while you gather up the tares, you uproot the wheat with them. Um, uh, and let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, 
but gather the wheat and put it into the barn. <clears throat> now we find down in verse 36, the disciples come and say, well, Lord, explain that. <clears throat> they realize that Jesus was telling them something deeper and, and just using basically, you know, a picture of something that was very common, uh, you know, that they saw, you know, on, on a seasonal kind of basis. Uh, but he was trying to speak to them a deeper truth. And so they, they're, they're, they're catching, they're, they're, they're realizing that. They're saying, Lord, well, what does that really mean? <clears throat> and he answered and said to them in verse 37, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. So it's Jesus Christ. The seed is the gospel. The seed is his word, his truth. Sowing it, you know, uh, in, a, in a sense, we are, we are sort of like, you know, we are like farmhands. We, we have the Bible. We have the seed. We're to sow it. Uh, we've been talking about that in the last month of, uh, of uh, June, uh, putting uh, uh, an emphasis on evangelization. Well, we extended that because it's kind of stirred up a lot of folks, uh, making us realize that, you know, we have a commission. We have a commission to fulfill, you know, to get the word out and to talk to people about the Lord. And, and I have found it interesting and amazing that there's a lot more people out there that are receptive a little more than I thought. And uh, so we need to be doing that. We need to be spreading the seed, getting it out there. And he says here, the field is the world. And the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so, will, so it will be at the end of the age. Now, this is exactly what he's... This parable relates to this, this end time period that we're talking about uh, in Revelation. And the Son of Man will send out his angels and will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. That will happen at the end of the tribulation. You know, for those who have basically made their alliance and given their allegiance to the Antichrist and the system, the evil system of this world, they will, they will go alive. That's why, remember, we talked about last week, uh, for those who are alive at that time. And I believe that the Holy Spirit will give them an understanding that if they receive that mark of the beast, in whatever form it is, you know, whatever form uh, that it represents, that mark that they're going to have to take in order to survive, that if they take that, they've, they've crossed the line. They, they've gone beyond you know, a point of any return. And so they're going, they're going to understand that. They're going to, to, to know that. Um, <clears throat> and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be welling and gnashing of teeth. So uh, they will go basically alive into hell. The only people, remember, the only people that go alive into the, into the millennial earth are those who have not received the mark of the beast and those that have come to Christ those that have been protected. Um, and I get a sense that it will be a remnant. And when you look, about, when you look at the, 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 the amount of people that will die you know, during the tribulation period, it is incredible. It, it's in the billions. It's in the billions. It's something that is so unimaginable, unrelatable, actually, for you and I, uh, to imagine that kind of carnage, uh, that, that kind of you know, thing happening. Um, you know, if, if maybe you've ever been exposed uh, to a war, um, it's a very, you know, we look at, uh, we talk about the traumatic uh, stress disorder of, you know, soldiers, people coming back out of a war theater. Um, it, it is, it's devastating. It takes a long time. I can't imagine what it's going to be like 
during that particular period. And it's interesting, too, because the Holy Spirit is using symbolic language here, in a sense, sparing us some of the gory details, um, he, he, using just a, a sort of a symbolic kind of a, a language here, uh, not giving us, you know, all the, the gore and so forth that's going to take place because it's going to be, it's going to be absolutely awful. <clears throat> but anyway, let's see. Uh, verse 42, they will be cast into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. That will be the kingdom age. Uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. <clears throat> so when we, as we're back here in verse 15 of chapter 14, uh, we, we see here that we're told the harvest of the earth is ripe. Uh, this means actually overripe, to, to the point of rottenness. In other words, it's absolutely beyond usage. So God here has given the earth before this time opportunity to turn to him, opportunity to repent. That's why, you know, Peter talks about the long-suffering of God is, is salvation. He waits patiently for people to turn to him. But there comes a point, uh, and, and certainly this is the point in the world where there will be um, <clears throat> no, no, no one else will be redeemable. Hard to believe. But God knows where that point is. It's like where God, God knows where the last Gentile will be saved for the church age. He knows who that person is, if they're alive now, uh, where they are in their life, and when it is that they accept Christ. He knows, he knows all those things. Um, <clears throat> so as we commit those things to him, we trust him that he works these things out uh, in a gracious and a merciful way. And, uh, you know, the Bible says he's not willing that any should perish. He, he's so kind uh, uh, and merciful uh, we, we see that. We need to realize that. When I read, you know, when I read these things about judgment, um, um, it, 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 it affects me in a certain kind of way. Um, I, I think it's very hard, and it should be difficult, I think, um, for preachers to preach about judgment, um, that we should do it, I think, you know, with a, with a great compassion. Uh, as somebody once said that we need to we need to speak these things with a, with a tear in our eye, uh, to never really take any kind of, you know, uh, relish in these things. You know, sometimes, you know, we may get mad at people. Uh, we may want, sometimes want to see somebody judged, uh, but that's not the spirit of the Lord. You know, we need to be compassionate. Sometimes, you know, we can get upset with unbelievers, you know, for the, maybe their, their treatment of us or the things they say to us or maybe say about us behind our back. Uh, and I think, you know, we need to be compassionate, realizing that if they don't repent, where they're going, you know, where they're heading, you know, to reach out in, you know, kindness and love uh, instead of, you know, just, you know, reacting in such a way to defend ourselves because maybe we've been offended or we've been hurt <clears throat> in some kind of way. Now, in verse 17 uh, and 18, one of the things that you find about these verses, every verse, I think, except for one, mentions a sharp sickle. And so the emphasis is clearly on that of judgment. Verse 18, and then an angel, another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. He cried with a loud, cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in uh, your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully white, ripe. 
Now, what we find here, what we note here in these verses, that we have another, we have a different kind of harvest. Harvest. We have a uh, different kind of symbolical language taking place here. Uh, the first harvest was that of wheat. We find here now there's one of a vine. It's speaking of you know grapes and so forth. And what I th- what I think that reminds me of very simply is Israel is symbolized by a vine. We find that in the scripture a number of times. We find it in chapter 5 of uh, Isaiah. Uh, chapter 5, I think the verse 4 verses, it, it speaks, uh, um, Isaiah there speaks and refers to that part as a song, a song to my well-beloved, uh, that he built her a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he expected grapes to come forth, but nothing but wild grapes came forth. And then over in Psalm chapter 80, and I love cha- chapter 80 of, of, the, of the Psalms there, uh, and it's a psalm of restoration. And uh, oftentimes, uh, I've, uh, when I've read Psalm 80, it's been so encouraging because you have a refrain. Remember, psalms are songs. Uh, sometimes, you know, that we look at them and we read them through in a, in a, in a way as, you know, they are, they are instructional. They, they, they do teach. Um, you, know, it's, you know, sometimes when you look at them, you think, well, how could you ever put music to that? you know, kind of a thing, but eventually they did. Uh, you know, at, at, they did when they originally wrote these things. Uh, certainly uh, music in that day was, was much different um, than it was today. But Psalm 80 is one of restoration. <laughs> verse 3, restore us, O God. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. You know, verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You've cast out the nations, you've planted it. You've prepared room for it, and you caused it to dig, take deep root. And it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, the mighty cedars with its boughs. You sent her, her boughs to the sea, her branches to the river. And then he goes <clears throat> into, why have you broken down her hedges? And then in verse 14, return, we beseech to you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven <clears throat> and visit this vine. And then over in verse 19, he speaks about revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts. And we will, we, will, we will turn to you. We will worship you. And so what I think is going on here at this point is God is dealing with unbelieving Israel. Uh, remember, we said that's one of the major themes, not only judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world, but, but judgment also to uh, and deliverance. He's bringing you know, the remnant of Israel to faith in himself. So he's not only dealing with them, he's also dealing with those who would destroy them. We know that Israel will be invaded by its enemies. Um, You know, you don't even really need to look at the Bible to see that. It seems to be their enemies have been poised at their borders for years. Um, And and we have some interesting prophecies that that point, you know, really to the future. Um, Israel's always been surrounded by their enemies. It's interesting. They've been a very peace. When When you look at the history of the Jewish people, they've been a very peaceful people. They really have. Um, and, and yet, there's all these enemies because why? They're the apple of God's eye. They're God, God has chosen them uh, to communicate who he is to the world. Uh, we know that uh, that didn't work out very well. Um, but you know, the fact of the matter is, he's chosen us as the church to reflect who he is to the world. And how's that working for us? <laughs> you know, in a sense, before we point the finger at Israel, and maybe we look at, you know, certainly their failure. Um, 
you know, we too have been, been given a commission to really communicate, you know, the love of our God, the saving grace of our God to our culture and to our community. Um, but over in Psalm 83, the enemies, there's two verses here I just want to quote to you, verses 4 and verses 12 of Psalm 83. Uh, here's what the enemies of God uh, say about Israel. They have said, come, let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Verse 12 goes like this, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God in, pos in, in possession. So this has always been the objective. And isn't, don't you find it fascinating that you got this little sliver of land. And when you look at the enemies of Israel, you know, they, they have so much real estate. It's absolutely you know, beyond, you know, any kind of rationale or understanding. Why would they want this little sliver of land? It's simply because they're energized, uh, you know, by the, you know, by the great enemy of God, Satan. And they simply want to destroy, you know, Satan, you know, Satan can use people in such a way they don't even know they're being used. That, that's sometimes, you know, what, what we don't understand. Sometimes when maybe we get personally attacked, you know, by our adversary, by the enemy. He may use somebody. I mean, if he could, he'd, you know, shout out of heaven or he'd attack us physically, but he can't. All he can do is inspire somebody that has, you know, a mouth or hands or whatever the case may be to say something toward us or to hurt us in some kind of way. And a lot of times people don't even realize, because <clears throat> if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're susceptible you're susceptible to be influenced by, by any other spirit. You know, thank God for his work and favor and mercy in our lives. What's going on out there in the spiritual realm that we cannot even grasp or understand? You know, <clears throat> sometimes, you know, we've perhaps maybe thought about, oh, if I can only look out into the spiritual realm, listen, if we could look out there, it'd scare us half to death. We'd say, close that window real quick. All I know is that God's in control of things out there, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for his mercy. And I'm here's, here's the thing that you become thankful for when you look at the world and the craziness and the things that go on. And, and you know, you look at the violence and you wonder, you know, is it ever going to touch our address? Is it ever going to touch us as a people? Is it ever going to come into our community or affect our family in some kind of way? We can have a peace and a rest of fact that to know that our hands, our lives are in the hands of God. We've committed ourselves to Him. And there's a wonderful rest about that. No matter how crazy things, because you know what? They're getting crazier, aren't they? They're just getting crazier out there. You know, the way people, I mean, they have whole programs given over to road rage now. <clears throat> Road rage events. And you know what? You wonder when the next mass shooting is going to take place. It's almost on a weekly basis. And, and we know why this is happening. You know, as a nation, you know, we've kind of said, God, leave us alone. And so he does. He does that. And it's not very nice. We know that as believers. And I think that as we look at some of the crazy things that are going on around us, the only way that you can make sense out of it is knowing God and knowing the truth. 
And we need to talk to people about that. Because, you know, people see the craziness that, that goes on around them. And we need to communicate to them our security. We have a security. We can have a peace. You know, sometimes we get caught up in the complaints, okay? We get, you know, we have our human nature, right? And we tend to get caught up in our griping and our complaining with everybody else. But we have to be careful of that. That, that doesn't really, it doesn't serve God's purpose. Uh, he, he, he has saved us and he puts us in a group of people, you know, to have impact and to bring truth to, that, to those people. And it doesn't mean you have to always be preaching and, you know, you know harping on the God thing. But I think, there are, I, I think there are, you know, opportunities and little open doors and windows, you know, that we have to interject something, to interject a truth, a, a, a biblical principle, or to say something about the Lord uh, that can really just make a difference. And a lot of times when you're in a group of people, um, I discover that <clears throat> it becomes very hard for us to do that. But everybody's throwing their opinion, and why shouldn't we? Why, why, why can't we just, you know, interject, you know, something that's, that's you know, truthful, some, tr- you know, some, some principle, some truth? Because uh, a lot of times, you know, people will, you know, sometimes they'll look at you when you say that. Uh, they won't respond because they, they don't want a conversation about that in front of everybody. But they come back later, individually. They say, hey, remember you said that? You know, what, what did you mean by that? And, and I think it can create a, a, an opportunity to witness um, and, and to really, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how truth has that way. It has a hook. Truth has a hook because uh, it's, it's, it's alive. And when we share it, <clears throat> it can just sort of cause something to resonate. You know, God can speak into someone's life. And that's a beautiful thing about truth. Uh, so often, you know, after a Bible study or, you know, the Sunday morning service, uh, somebody will come up to me and say, well, that, wow, that you know, that, that point you really made was really, in, you know, um, it, it really important and relative to, to, to my situation. And I have no idea of that. But God does. And, and God speaks into our condition, into our situation. And sometimes he can use some truth that just some, that, that's kind of a little bit of a surprise to us. <clears throat> okay, we're in verse, uh, verse 19. Now, like I said before, the Holy Spirit, uh, he spares us some gory details uh, and he gives us here basically a picture of a harvester, th- you know, gathering up these clusters of grapes and throwing them into a wine press. The angel thrust the sickle into the earth and gathered the, wine of the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Now, Joel chapter 3 gives us some details about this very event. Uh, in Joel chapter 3, uh, in verses 9 through 14, And he says here, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of of war draw near, let them come up. And beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. And assemble and come, all you nations. Gather together all around and cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened. And come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's right outside Jerusalem. If you were with us uh, for the trip, uh, we traveled along the valley, the Kidron Valley. That, that's the valley of Jehoshaphat. And it speaks about these nations coming up. 
uh, you know, that have been gathered to destroy Jerusalem. And, he, and here's what the Lord says, uh, For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, and the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And so, really, for these folks, you know what? They've made their decision. See, God gives everyone an opportunity to make their decision. Who are you going to stand with? You're going to stand with Christ? You're going to stand with God? And if we don't, that's why I, I think the, um, the diversity of religions in this world says you don't have to stand with Christ. But that's what the Bible tells us, that we have to. And, and again, people think, well, you know, it's okay for me to be a Buddhist. It's okay for me to be Baha'i, whatever the case may be. But it's only as we have committed our faith and put it in Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the decision. And I think, in a sense, there are multitudes today. There are multitudes today at this time. They're in a value of decision. They need to make a decision to commit their life, to give themselves to the Lord and to the Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, the sad irony about this is, you know what? Jesus suffered God's wrath for you and I, for, for anyone, for everyone. It's for anyone. It's for all. For anyone who will simply believe. That's the irony, the sad irony of it, that no one has to suffer the judgment of God because they have put their faith, their trust in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 puts it like this. God did not appoint us to wrath, but, obtain, but to obtain salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 5, 8 and 9 say the same thing. And sometimes I have kind of little debates, theological debates with Christians who absolutely are convinced that they have to go through the tribulation. The church has to go through that. You know, you know why they think that? Because of the imperfections of the church today, and they think we have to go through there to get, to get refined. The fact is, with all of our imperfections, we are perfect in Christ. We are perfect in him. Yeah, he's working on a lot of things. Yeah, we got failures. We make mistakes. We do stupid things. <laughs> but God looks down and he sees, when he sees the church, he sees his son. We're protected by him. And that's what the cross is all about. Taking our judgment. It was transferred to the cross. And that's why the cross stands up in all time and eternity. 2,000 years later, for the person who says, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe what he's done for me. There's an immediate, when, that's, when that takes place in faith, and it has to take place in faith and sincerity. Because some people said, well, you know, I tried to get saved and it just didn't happen for me. And there's all kinds of little devices that can be in the human heart. But when somebody puts their unequivocal, you know, sincerity and faith 
and belief in Jesus Christ and what he did for me, there is a transfer spiritually. We don't see it, but I'll tell you what, you feel it. You feel the weight lift off you. You feel the new life come into you because our sins are transferred right to that cross and right to the Son of God. No, we don't have to go through the tribulation to get purified, thank God. Now in verse 20, we're introduced here to the city, that's Jerusalem. You know, it's the one and only city in all the earth that God has chosen for his own. Psalm 132 tells us that. Zechariah 3, verse 2 tells us that. But also, too, Jerusalem is the devil's strategic target. And if he could not have it for his own, he would just as soon destroy it. And that's what he's going to do. The winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,000 600 furlongs. You know, no matter what the hell-bent Antichrist can do, God always wins. He always wins. And even though you and I, sometimes we look like we're losing, it can often happen for the child of God, for the Christian, for the church. That's why the world, when the world looks at you and me, they think we're losers. They do. You're such a loser, man. You need just Jesus' crutch. And that's the enigma of it because we're the winners. We're the victors. And no matter what the hell-bent Antichrist will do, God wins. He always wins. I was thinking of an old cartoon. The coyote always loses. If you remember the Roadrunner. I used to watch that when I was a kid. Is he ever going to win? No, he always loses. God always wins. And even though you may feel like you're losing presently, you're winning. You're walking with him. You're trusting him. You're living for him. You're a winner. You, when you come to Christ, you're automatically in the winner's circle. <laughs> Marge and I were out in the boat the other day. We were in Candigua Lake. <clears throat> and we're, drive, we're just going very slowly, like two miles an hour, along the shore, West Lake looking at all these palatial homes. Beautiful homes. Gorgeous. Some of them just gorgeous. Some are so massive. And thinking of the people in those homes. Because a lot of those homes, no one's even living in them. They're, they're like a vacation residence, a summer residence. And, you know, you, when, when you're looking at them like they're thinking, oh, it would be so nice if I could have just that little one over there, you know. <laughs> but I was thinking about our mansion in heaven compared to that. Man, that's the slums. That's the slums compared to what you and I are going to have 
in glory. Because I think a lot of times, too, we're like that. We're, we're kind of like that, aren't we? We, we tend to compare our lives and you know, what we have, what we don't have. But if you got Jesus, you got the total package. You got him. We go back and forth, Margie and I go back and forth on this thing. We got this boat, it's like 55 years old. And it's got so many leaks in it. And it's got a little bilge thing, and if we didn't pump out water by the hour, we would sink. <laughs> and we've kind of gone back and forth, you know, should we buy another boat? Should we buy another boat? And I was thinking, no, I think this boat's like me. It's just old and it's got a lot of leaks, you know? <laughs> And, uh, and, it's, and it was interesting because the boat was, you know, it was just an old boat that nobody was using for years. It was just kind of, it was kind of like reclaimed and, 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 and restored. And it's just like, yeah, that boat's just like me. And one thing about that nice old boat, you know, if I get a dent or, or a, you know, a scratch in it, if I had a new boat, you know, that I'd be crazy. You know how you get. One little, oh, you know. <clears throat> so the response here to this massive uh, invasion of Israel will be so swift and lethal by the Lord. Imagine blood running for 185 miles, two to three feet deep. It, it's unimaginable. That basically, that, that distance would be from Megiddo, that's at the head of the valley of Jezreel, Armageddon, where Armageddon is, that great valley, all the way down to the southern tip of Israel, 185 miles, 180, 185 miles. Can you imagine that kind of bloodshed? <laughs> Incredible. I'm not, not going to turn there, but Isaiah 63 speaks about Jesus. And he comes up from Basra, and they see him. And they look at his garments, and they're all bloodstained. They say that, that you look like you've tread the wine fat. As he returns, and he brings judgment to God's enemies, and he's coming up to Jerusalem. You know, I was thinking about Jerusalem this, this week. You know the city's been under attack 52 times, more so than any city in all the world. Captured 44 times and recaptured, besieged 23 times, and destroyed two times. There's not been any city in the world that has been more fighting for that real estate. What Psalm 48 tells us, it's what? It's the city of the great king. God has claimed it for his own. And remember the, one of the profiles of Satan in Isaiah 14? He wants to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. He wants to be God. Let's close this out on a more blessed note. <laughs> Somebody say thank you down there. <clears throat> now this is a special promise, and it comes on the heels of another special promise that we find over in verse 12. But he said, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, blessed are those, or blessed are, <clears throat> are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. 
So here's a special promise to those who have given their life. They've sacrificed themselves, you know, for Christ. But here's the thing. I think this is not only applicable to them, but us as well. Do you know that all of your efforts and all of the work that you have done will not be overlooked? What's it say in Hebrews 6.10, I believe? God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love that you have shown toward his name. And you continue to minister in that way. Even those who have given a drink of water to his people will be remembered. You know, I think in this generation, I, I think the doctrine or the teaching of hard work and service has basically been, or generally been, disregarded. There are rewards to be claimed. There are crowns to be given. That's not about salvation. That's for works. And I'll tell you what, I am so thankful for the servants and the workers in this church. But no matter what church I've been in, there's always a need for more. We, we need to realize that as we serve the Lord, there's an eternal payback for that. The world likes to serve themselves. That's our world. That's the nature of humanity. But to serve him, to serve the, the, the mighty king, what an honor, what a privilege that you and I have. And the thing is, you know what, you, we don't work for salvation, basically. We work from salvation. We work because we are saved. <clears throat> And it's interesting here, the Spirit, this is the first time in Revelation that the Holy Spirit gives an amen or a yes, an affirmation about this whole thing. I think there may be many today that don't worry about this whole matter of rewards. They will then. I can remember being in school. And during the course of the year thinking, I want to goof off. I don't want to do the work. You know when I really cared? Report card time. That's when I cared. And there's a big report card coming. It's not a matter of salvation. We know that. But you know what I want for you and for me? To enter in with a rich reward. That when the Lord comes to be found serving him, there's a great blessing in that. Because if you get a reward, here and now, no matter what it is, it's got a shelf life, amen? But when God gives you a crown or some kind of reward, it will be forever and ever and ever.
If the Lord has been speaking to you in any kind of way about this area of maybe serving him, taking a step of faith, and that can be in so many different ways, I want you to stand up. I want to pray for you. Because I know sometimes the Lord speaks to us about serving. And then, you know, our human frailties or the devil comes in and lies to us about it. And, and sometimes, and I was sharing this Wednesday night, you know, sometimes you and I will take steps of faith and they will seem like failures to us. I can't tell you how many I've had of these in my life. And it's only by the grace of God that I continued to move forward. I've got so many legitimate steps of faith that I took, and I look, and I look at the result of it afterwards, and it's like, <laughs> But you know what I think is more important sometimes than what is accomplished? The desire that we had to serve the Lord. The desire that we have to please the Lord. You know, David never got a chance to build the temple. But you know, he got credit for it. He got credit for it because the desire was in his heart and he did what he could. So Father, we praise you. And Lord, we look to you. And Lord, uh, what a privilege, what an honor that you would give us the nod, that you would tap us on the shoulder and give us an opportunity to serve you. Father, I thank you for those that have stood up. And Lord, perhaps in many ways we have served you. Yet we find, Lord, as we walk through one door, there seems to be another. Another door of opportunity. Another blessing. <clears throat> so, Father, I pray for us. And even for those, Lord, sometimes, Lord, we want to stand up, but we feel fearful we can't. Lord, we look to you and we ask you to just equip us, Lord. Equip us with faith. Lord, equip us with the, just the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the determination, Lord, the desire. Because so often, Lord, we feel inadequate. We feel so very insufficient. And Lord, we are in ourselves. As Paul said, our sufficiency comes from you. And so, Lord, once again, we come to you by faith. We, we come believing that you are God and that you're speaking to our heart, to our lives, to our need today. And I pray, Father, that you would energize and empower each one of us. Lord, as we make our determination in all of our frailty, in all of our sense of inadequacy, that you would show yourself strong, you would empower and equip, that we might bring you glory and honor in Jesus' precious name, amen.